The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian Dr. George Hunzinger explains how we are chosen in Jesus Christ, who is the Chosen One. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for being with us today. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. You're part of the Reformed tradition as a Presbyterian minister. Yes. And could you tell our viewers something about the Reformed tradition and the role it's played in the history of Christianity? The Reformed tradition developed in the 16th century uh, at the same time as the Lutheran Reformation. So the Reformed tradition originally was based in Switzerland and southern Germany and eventually came to be associated with the name of John Calvin. But there were many uh, different theologians who were uh, founders, so to speak, of the Reformed tradition. And that's why we don't usually uh, hear about Calvinistic churches. You hear about Reformed churches or Presbyterian churches. And then it spread to uh, places like Holland, and Hungary, and then uh, in its English language versions, uh, England and Scotland, and eventually to the United States. So our, our most uh, prominent theologian historically is John Calvin, and the continental uh, version of the Reformed tradition uh, used the Heidelberg Catechism as its basis of instruction, whereas in the Anglo-American version, uh, and then coming into the United States, uh, the catechisms and confessions that were used came out of the Westminster Assembly that was held in the 17th century. So the, the Westminster catechisms were the English language catechisms as opposed to uh, the Heidelberg that was used on the continent. Now, you're also president of the Karl Barth Society of North America, and you're active in the T.F. Torrance uh, Theological Fellowship. Can you give us some perspective on uh, how Calvin, Barth, and Torrance into uh, major theological themes today? Well, Karl Barth has been described as uh, the most important theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Those were actually the words of Pope Pius uh, Twelfth. He was a larger-than-life figure who wrote uh, a massive amount uh, theologically. His great work is called Church Dogmatics, but uh, he wrote much more than that. And like Luther and Calvin, he was also a person of affairs. He uh, played a leadership role in church and society uh, in the course of his life. He was born in 1886 and died in uh, 1968. And Bart uh, is often uh, remembered for the role he played in uh, the Confessing Church, which was that element of the German Protestant Church that stood up to Hitler. And Barth was the principal author of the Barman Declaration, which now has a kind of confessional status in my own church, the Presbyterian Church USA. We include that in our book of confessions. And Thomas Torrance was Karl Barth's most important uh, English-speaking student. So Torrance uh, went from Scotland to uh, Basel to study with Karl Barth, and then uh, when Bart was about to retire, he uh, had hoped that perhaps Torrance 
would become uh, his successor. But Torrance wanted to stay in Edinburgh and continue there, so that didn't happen. Torrance, uh, there are actually at least three Thomas Torrances. There, there's Torrance, the dogmatic or systematic theologian. Uh, there's Torrance, the figure who did groundbreaking work in the uh, dialogue of theology and science. And uh, Torrance, the historical theologian, he's the one who's least well-known, but the one I profit the most from, I think. And along with being a historical theologian, and there's not a single major theologian in the history of the Christian tradition about whom he hasn't written at some length. Uh, These things are scattered in journals and uh, anthologies and so on. But Torrance was also an ecumenical scholar and devoted a great deal of his career, especially to dialogue uh, set up between the Reformed churches and Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's also a part of the Torrance legacy uh, that I try to uh, follow in. Uh, you've written a book, or, or one of the books that you have written is uh, How to Read Karl Barth, The Shape of His Theology. Yes. I wanted to talk about a few things in here. Uh, on, on page 106, uh, you, have, you make this comment. Two points above all seemed essential to Bart about salvation. First, what took place in Jesus Christ for our salvation avails for all. Second, no one actively participates in him and therefore in his righteousness apart from faith. Could you elaborate on, on that? Sure, thanks. Yeah, that's actually a very deep uh, aspect of how Karl Bart understands salvation. Sometimes, it's, it's a little simple, but it, it makes the point. Sometimes the distinction is made between uh, the objective pull of salvation and the subjective pull. So uh, the first part of the statement that you read has to do with the objective pull, what God has done uh, for us in Christ apart from us before we know about it, uh, before we receive it, before we make any response to it. And here... uh, Bard, I think, you know, starting with the, the central conviction of the Reformation based on uh, Christ alone and uh, the significance of Christ alone as uh, the exclusive savior of the human race. He started from there and tried to think it through in a way that uh, really had little precedent in the West. And what he ended up doing in some degree uh, was uh, he thought himself into the Eastern Orthodox and Greek wing of the church. So, and Torrance has written about this. Uh, in many ways, Bart is closer to Athanasius, a great uh, figure in the history of the church, uh, than he is to Augustine, who was uh, formative for the Latin West. Now, uh, It's not as uncommon in uh, the Eastern Orthodox traditions to give more centrality to the idea of the universal significance of Christ's saving work, especially in its objective pull. So that uh, when the New Testament says all, A-L-L, which it does quite a lot, uh, that shouldn't be marginalized. You know, that, that has uh, an important place in our understanding of Christ and his saving significance. But in the West, because Augustine started from the bottom up and thought about uh, uh, 
whether we love God more than ourselves or ourselves more than God. You know, the self-love and love for God were seen as competing with one another and uh, apart from conversion to Christ, uh, self-love trumps everything. And therefore you have uh, the two loves, you have the two cities. So uh, the city of God is composed of people who order their loves properly by uh, subjecting self-love uh, to the control of love for God, if not eliminating self-love uh, completely in, a, in its selfish forms. So you, you have that city, the city of God, and you have the earthly city. And, and Augustine, in this bottom-up approach, thought it back into the reality of God. So uh, the two loves and the two cities had their eternal foundation in God's uh, uh, eternal predestination of the human race. So, so this uh, division is thought to be uh, ultimate. It has the last word. Now, it's not how Athanasius thought about these things. If, if you go to uh, the great St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, uh, you know, it's a huge structure. And you walk in and they actually have markers showing where other cathedrals would fit in. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, Cologne and so on would, would end here. You know, so it's, you know, and it's just filled with uh, magnificent uh, art. But you know, way toward the front, uh, there are these huge statues of four figures uh, of importance to uh, the whole church and, and even to the Roman Catholic Church. And on the one hand, it's Augustine and Ambrose, so the, and they're all bishops, uh, you know, and Ambrose was important in uh, bringing Augustine to the faith, and you know, Augustine is more the theologian, and Ambrose is more the administrative uh, bishop uh, of Milan. But then they have two Greek-speaking theologians. One of them is Chrysostom, uh, you know, who, which means he had a, a, a golden tongue. He was a golden-tongued orator. And, and the fourth one is Athanasius. Uh, and I mention that just because if, if you sort of flee from Augustine, to Athanasius. It's not like fleeing from uh, the clutches of the bear into the jaws of the lion. You know, I mean, I mean, you're going from one great world historical theologian to another. But Athanasius and the Greeks in general, back in the uh, early centuries, third, fourth, fifth centuries, thought about these matters not so much in a bottom-up way as in a top-down way. So uh, Athanasius thought about election, actually, beginning with the Trinity, and the Incarnation. And when you do that, you don't have to uh, marginalize the passages that say that uh, Christ died for all. So it, it turns out that 2 Corinthians 5.14 was a seminal verse for Athanasius, and then later for Karl Barth, and uh, also for Tom Torrance. And that's the one that says, One has died for all, Therefore, all have died. And of course, then it goes on that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. But the, that first part, that one has died for all, therefore, all have died. I mean, that's such an interesting verse because it doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur. It, uh, it's not logically the case that just because one died for all, all died. But in, in uh, the substance of the matter... Uh, that, that's what the death of Christ means, according to Paul, in that very important passage of 2 Corinthians 5. And I, I've looked this up. Uh, 
it's the same verb tense each time, died. Uh, it's aorist in the Greek, which means a completed event. I actually thought it would be in the perfect tense, which has some kind of ongoing uh, uh, consequences. But you know, it, it's, it's the stronger sense. One died for all, therefore all died. Well, I mean, even though it's aorist both times, the death of all can't be exactly the same as the death of the one. But somehow, the all are included, not just potentially. This is how Bart read it. This is how Athanasius uh, read it. Uh, it. It's not just potentially that all died or that it, it's sufficient for all, but uh, efficacious only for those who respond in faith. No, uh, in some mysterious way, all are included in the death of Christ. And that's the objective pole of salvation. So it means that uh, if someone comes to faith, it's not a transition from being an outsider to being an insider. Uh, we're all insiders, whether we know it or not. And Christians are those who are brought to uh, uh, the point of awakening that Christ has already accepted them, has already embraced them, that, that they may have been resisting their salvation, they may have been resisting their election, but their decision uh, of coming to faith or their, their being awakened to faith, however that happens, doesn't bring about the transition from being an outsider to being an insider. That has been accomplished by the grace of God uh, apart from us. So that, that's the objective pull of salvation that has this uh, strong universalistic element, but it's not uh, fulfilled. It doesn't reach its goal until each person comes to acknowledge and recognize Jesus Christ for who he is. And uh, the way Bart thought this through, uh, it's something like that old story that I think many of us have heard uh, one too many times uh, about the pair of footprints on the beach. You know, I mean, the first there are two pairs of footprints, and then there's only one pair, and then there are two pairs again, and, you know, the, where there are only one pair of footprints, that was the most difficult period in my life, you know, and where were you, you know, I was alone, uh, Christ was absent somehow, and, and the Lord says, that's when I was carrying you. Well, I mean, the Lord is somehow, in an incognito way, uh, at least, carrying all of us, whether we know it or not, and there, there comes that uh, point at the end of all things when who Christ has been for us is disclosed to each one. So, so there's no one, whether before Christ or after Christ, as Bard understood it, who isn't included in uh, the grace of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and to whom Christ is not present in uh, any number of mysterious and uh, uh, imperceptible ways that will only be made fully known at the end. But on the subjective side, it's absolutely essential that Christ be acknowledged as Lord for who he is. So we have the great verse, for example, in the, the hymn in chapter 2 of Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Again, it's an all passage, every knee, whether in heaven or on earth, or under the earth. Well, that's intriguing. I, I actually don't quite know what those distinctions are about, you know, heaven, earth, and, and under the earth. Uh, and it, it's not crystal clear how to interpret that, but it, it's perhaps hopeful. I mean, even under the earth, Jesus is acknowledged for who he is. So uh, 
I think the line of continuity, if, if there's a difference between faith and sight, you know, that, that final transition from faith to sight, uh, there's also a transition from lack of faith to sight for those who don't come to know Christ and acknowledge him and love him and serve him in this life. Uh, at some point, everyone will see him and know him for who he is. His uh, identity will no longer be hidden. He'll be revealed in glory. Uh, that's at the end. But here and now, some are called to faith and called to be Christ's witnesses, called to be Christ's uh, servants, uh, called to be the people who know and proclaim him uh, through word and deed here and now. So that's the subjective side, and that's what Bart is getting at in that passage. But the difference between the... And this is like... This is not exactly what uh, Athanasius would have said, but uh, actually the, the longest single quotation from any theologian, as far as I know, in the church dogmatics, which is like a 10,000-page argument, uh, is from Athanasius. And, and Bart wrote long, uh, uh, large print sections, and then he wrote fine print sections where he went into historical matters. and They're like long footnotes or digressions uh, or little essays on their own. In a fine print section, when he's talking about election, you know, and, and this, he's taking this Trinitarian, Christocentric, top-down approach, he goes into this very lengthy quotation from Athanasius. It's the longest quotation from any single author, uh, another theologian, in Bart's Church Dogmatics. And it's precisely on this point. And I think what Bart discovered there was that Athanasius anticipated what he wanted to say, and, and he, you know, it took him 750 pages to do it, where it's, it's about three pages in Athanasius. But Athanasius's view is Bart's view in a nutshell. But see, in the West, we are uh, kind of conditioned to think that the Augustinian way of reading the New Testament on these matters is the only way. And there's a rule of inter biblical interpretation that says that the uh, clear passages should interpret the obscure passages or the less clear passages. And that's, that's, a, that's great. That's a good rule. But it presupposes that you know what the clear passages are and what the obscure passages are. And Augustine decided that Matthew 25 was the clear passage. And that's the passage with the separation of the sheep and the goats. So he made that the controlling idea for anything else, and that's why the all passages got marginalized in Western biblical interpretation. Whereas you might think the statement, one has died for all, is pretty clear. Uh, but in the West, uh, and this is true of the Reformed tradition also, you know, Calvin in, included, in, in Luther, in the West, it was thought that these all passages always had to be read with some kind of mental reservation because. Uh, the clear passages told us that all was not true, or it might be too good to be true. Well, because of the uh, emphasis on the universal efficacy of Christ's saving death in the theology of Karl Barth, people have thought, well, he's a universalist. He's just preaching universal salvation, and if you're a universalist, well, why, uh, why does it matter if you come to faith as, as if uh, the only reason to come to faith is to save your own ultimate 
skin, and you know, there's kind of the self-serving reason you, you you need to turn to Christ to escape some sort of terrible outcome. You know, which is, if you think about it, not the best way of preaching the gospel. But you know, it's it's, it's of course it's the whole Western tradition. No, uh, one of the wisest things I ever heard said about Karl Barth's theology. He, He's known for representing what's called dialectical theology, which means that uh, you create tensions and you don't resolve them. And uh, somebody once said, it's amazing how many wheels within wheels Bart's dialectical engine can keep spinning. So you might read him up to a certain point and then stop and say, okay, he's a universalist. But no, there's a wheel within a wheel there. The, the, The dialectical engine goes on. Almost all the mistakes in interpreting Barth's theology, of which there are uh, very many, uh, come down to not thinking dialectically enough with him and not seeing how he's got... And and he doesn't always take care to just stop and say, okay, there's a tension here, and now I'm going to develop one side of it. No, he just develops one side of it, and it might not be for several hundred pages later that you get the wheel within the wheel. And, you know, it it, it takes a long time to get the, the overall sweep of it. But... Barth takes a position that I call reverent agnosticism. That is, he leaves the question open in hope. He doesn't give up hope for anyone. Uh, He thinks we don't have to give up hope for anyone. And and think of all the anguish that devout Christians have gone through if if a loved one, a a parent or a child or uh, someone close to them, dies without coming to faith in Christ. I mean, it means the only alternative is they're lost eternally. They're, they're, they're in eternal damnation, eternally cut off from uh, the love and joy of God. Bart says, okay, we're human beings. Uh, we're not God. We have to leave the outcome to God. So he, he takes a view that I call reverent agnosticism. He leaves the question open in hope. So if the option is not all are saved, the Augustinian option, or all are saved, which actually goes back to the the theologian Origen and some others in the East, Gregory of Nyssa and so on. It's not the standard Eastern view. They they don't embrace universalism outright either, but it's more uh, prominent in some of the historical sources in the East and in the West. Bart rejects that forced alternative. He won't say all are saved. He won't say not all are saved. Uh, All are saved in some sense, but how that will work out, he leaves open. And there's a wonderful little line uh, at one point where where he's talking about that sort of last judgment that each of us will face. I mean, we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's like that ultimate interview situation where, where you're confronted with uh, Christ and you, you find out about the footprints in the sand and, and so on. And Bart says, perhaps the Holy Spirit will have a little less trouble with the others than he had with us. <laughs> Going uh, into Torrance then, yeah. how does he uh, build off of, of those concepts from Bart? Torrance, as a rule, seems to position himself somewhere between Calvin and Bart. So he he doesn't go quite as far in the direction of universal hope as Bart does. But he doesn't retreat from it either. 
It's just that he feels the tug of the historic Reformed tradition a little more strongly, not a lot, but a little more than Bart did. So, I mean, Bart is just uh, fascinated and delighted by all the passages in the New Testament which use the word all. And Bart really wants to take those passages seriously. Uh, you know, it, it's so interesting, you know, the biblical literalists as we know them in the U.S. and, and uh, English, the English-speaking world, they, they can't take the word all seriously or, or literally because of this Augustinian tradition. They know that that's not true, so wherever it says all, it can't quite mean all. It has to mean all in some qualified sense. E even Aquinas takes that view. Aquinas says that the, the death of Christ is sufficient for all, but efficacious only for some. It, it has saving power only for some. That's the kind of standard distinction. You find that in Calvin, too. Torrance... He stays a little ambiguous on, on, this, on this point. Uh, he doesn't reject Bart, but he doesn't uh, depart as much from Calvin and the Latin West as dramatically as Bart did. Going back to your statement uh, about, uh, that Bart made about being, uh, maybe, maybe we won't have as much trouble with them. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on that just a little more? Bart was really a, a reformational theologian. Uh, he, he really saw his task as trying to go back to the Reformation and rethink it from the ground up uh, because there's a sense in which the Reformation was unfinished and, and didn't fully break uh, from it, according to its deepest insights from the penitential uh, way of thinking about salvation that was established uh, in, in the medieval church. And so the, this medieval penitentialism, well, uh, it, it's one of the reasons why in the Roman Catholic tradition, I don't think this is, is a terrible thing, but uh, you know, everything has its downside. You know, the, the Catholic tradition always has Christ hanging on the cross, you know, you know, famously. And, and the, the Reformed traditions, the Protestant traditions, have an empty cross. Well, uh, the Greek church doesn't have Christ hanging on a cross either. I mean, it, but it, it's a church of splendor and magnificence. You've got, got a gilded cross, you know, uh, with, with jewels and, and so on. And, but, but not Christ hanging on the cross. Well, that, that man of sorrows, that, that uh, sense that you know, Christ uh, sacrificed himself and shed his blood for us, that, that, that focus on the moment of the cross, that, that negative, sorrowful moment, it, it has its place, absolutely. But it, it tended to eclipse other aspects of the gospel that are equally, if not more, important. And, and Bart certainly felt that the East was more correct by putting the accent on joy and resurrection than on the cross. You know, keeping them in full tension. But in the end, you can't take the cross too seriously, but no matter how seriously you take the cross, you have to take Christ's resurrection even more seriously. You know, something like that. Romans uh, 5. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so, putting the accent on, it's, it's actually, Bart liked the 18th century for its optimism even though he thought its optimism at the surface level was off, it, secretly, in a hidden way, it had 
some insight into Christ's resurrection, whether it knew it or not. You know, uh, but by going back to the Reformation and trying to think it through again from the bottom up and, and to get outside this dominance of the medieval penitential tradition and introspection and you know, uh, uh, having to do penance for your sins and you know, worrying that your salvation is constantly at stake because uh, if you uh, have a misstep and maybe a terrible misstep, if you commit a mortal sin uh, in the medieval penitential tradition and in Roman Catholicism to this day, you, you lose your salvation. Uh, so uh, you're the weak link in the chain, and you you can blow it all, no matter what has gone before. This is not Luther. This is not the Reformation. It, part of what it meant for Bard to go back and try to rethink the Reformation on its own terms was to pick up on uh, Luther's insight that all sin is mortal sin, uh, and that's what Christ saves us from. Um, it doesn't mean that some sins are not worse than others. They, they are. Uh, but it does mean that sin is categorical first before it's a matter of degree. So you, you can drown in a few inches of water or you can drown at the bottom of the ocean. But if your head is not above the water line, you can't breathe. You know, sin is like that. It's like death. You're either dead or you're not dead. Or pregnancy. You're not a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. You're either a sinner or you're not a sinner. And, you know, some people like Mother Teresa, you know, she may be close to the top of the water and others like, you know, theologians, they're, they're down there near the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and there's a whole gradation uh, in between. But all sin is mortal sin. And therefore, when Christ saves us from our sins, and Luther says this explicitly in his great commentary on Galatians, it's all our sins, past, present, and future. So the idea that the Holy Spirit might have a little less trouble with them than uh, he has with us is a, a kind of a wry way of saying we're all sinners. And it's, it's connected not only to sin being mortal sin, but being simul justus et peccator. You know, Luther's great insight that to be a Christian is simultaneously to be sinful and justified, saved at one and the same time. There, that's, a, that's a dialectical or a paradoxical idea. I think it's a, a really liberating idea. Uh, I, I think we see uh, the consequences of the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches not having fully grasped or accepted what this is about because they have to be too holy. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they can't allow criticism and divine judgment beyond a, a certain point. They have to make all these sort of qualifications. And even for Protestants, you know, uh, you either have to sort of uh, delude yourself that you're not as sinful as you are, or you fall into despair and uh, you're so yeah. sinful that you've blown everything. Yeah. You know, th this is the great uh, liberating aspect of putting the primary weight on the objective pole of salvation, that... Christ's love for us and grace toward us comes to us as lost sinners. This is, this is Luther. Grace always comes to lost sinners and only to lost sinners. See, I mean, when, when that is known and understood, to me, that's really the liberation of the gospel. So uh, 
This is true even for those who do not yet, that's how Bart puts it, do not yet know and acknowledge Christ for who exactly. he is. Like the woman that Jesus spoke to, who, who loves God more? The one who was forgiven more? Yeah, she knows her her sinfulness. Everyone sitting around the table didn't. And, and is she going to have smooth sailing, sailing from then on? You know, no right. no lapses. No, exactly. no, no. Of course not. Yeah. There's always more grace in God than there is sin in us. You've been watching. You're included. A production of Grace Communion International.